Company on ESPN Las Vegas and ESPN Sports Reno. Good job by Caleb Herring, former UNLV quarterback, football insider, big sports fan, talking some NBA, talking some John Morant and uh, 2A. He shot that whole thing down. John Von Tobel is here. ESPN Reno, ESPN Las Vegas. Here is T.I., Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. Another cool weekend down in the uh, south part of the state as we got EDC in town. And the next week, of course, is Memorial Day weekend. And it's heating up here. It's heating up here. Nice and steamy. Outside, we got 55-plus TVs to check out all the sports action. That includes Eastern Conference NBA. Coming up in just a little bit with the Celtics and the Heat. And we got the beginning of the Western Conference Final in the NHL with the Golden Knights just down the road at the Fortress taking on the Dallas Stars. Big Four time. Battleborn Injury Lawyers presents the Big Four at Four. Number four. Yeah, the John Morant stuff's really interesting uh, in terms of the gun talk, his behavior talk, what's a crime is someone being suspected of a crime or you're worried about someone committing a crime. All that stuff is kind of rolled in. When can lease come in and punish someone almost preemptively? That's part of the discussion. Now we got an NFL-related story that's really interesting with former Niner fullback Bruce Miller, who did what online? I was just messing around with a congressman, uh, a representative, uh, including or excuse me, uh, uh, Eric Swalwell would be his name, California congressman, who uh, shared to Twitter a DM that he got from the former 49er that said, quote, almost time, three exclamation marks, would you rather Guantanamo or just execution? Three crying laughing emojis, and then effing traitor. So it's just perfectly normal tweet that you send to a congressman or a representative, you know? I mean, I do that stuff all the time. Um, which, I guess apparently, the 49ers actually reached out to Swalwell on Thursday to get some information, you don't know why, and it was then reported that Miller sent out a tweet Thursday where he actually started to downplay his message. Quote, I was content with trolling corrupt politicians in my DMs, but since you want to make a story out of it, then that's what we'll do. That was in no way a threat to you or your family. Ha. I, it's not the way it works. I guess when you threaten to execute somebody, if you put three crying laughing emojis, it's not supposed to be considered a threat. That's really the defense. That's absurd. Here's the thing, though, Steve. It's not like Miller has a history. It's not like Miller, say, I don't know, assaulted a seven-year-old man at 2.30 in the morning that caused the 49ers to cut him. Nothing like that has happened before in the past. Oh, boy. It's not like he was in trouble for PEDs and might all those things come together with, you know, a little bit of alcohol issues when it came to that assault of a 70-year-old man. Guy seems totally normal. So, I, I mean, I think I kind of get it, you know. I don't think there was anything wrong with the DM. Number three. This one's interesting. So Pat McAfee has Pac-Man Jones on his show all the time. We have quite a history with Pac-Man Jones. It's a pretty tragic history. Going back to the All-Star Weekend 2007 at the Minx Gentleman's Club. Um, yeah, something broke out. There was gunfire. Uh, one bouncer was paralyzed from it. Another guy had his freaking elbow shattered. In the end, a couple of years later, Pac-Man wound up paying out $10 million plus in damages. 12.4 specifically. So Pac-Man is now, and, you know, Pac-Man had quite the list of, we'll say, incidents. Wasn't always charged with a crime, which, again, is a big part of these discussions, right? But he had quite a history. Maybe he's learned his lesson, 
And he has actually referenced talking, trying to reach out to John Morant to say, hey, you know what? Look at my example. Should we should we let this just go when it comes to Vegas and what he did here? Because he's got some kind of relationship with Mark Stone. And then McAfee spun that into, hey, if you guys win the cup, I'm going to give $250,000 to a charity. What do you think about the Mark Stone kind of loosely VGK tied to Pac-Man Jones? I mean, there's no way he knows, right? It's an old story. It's 2007. I mean, doesn't everyone have some familiarity with Pac-Man Jones and that he was in trouble a lot? No, but I'm saying Mark Stone in general. I mean, Does anyone with VGK have any knowledge of Pac-Man Jones? Has anyone maybe. lived here for a while? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't right. know if they need to tell cool. him, like, no, 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 no. Like, we don't want to be associated with Pac-Man Jones or is like, hey, he's turned, he's turned over a new leaf. He's changed. I, I think These so. things happen. There's two things. One, the, to, your, to your question of should we forget it, I think that's personal. If you don't want to forget it, I, I think you're perfectly in your mind to not forget it. He did something that wasn't great. It affected two people's lives. He had to pay for it monetarily. And if you never want to forget something like that, I don't think you should be forced to. If you feel like he, is, he had his comeuppance and had to pay for it and you want to forgive him, that's up to you too. I, I feel like this connection is more acceptable because it ends in a charitable donation. Now, it's not like Mark Stone in a gun commercial with Pac Jones. Right. It's, it's, it's something a little bit different that they're not actually tied together at the hip with it, and it's for a good cause to a certain extent. Number two. Most people around the country won't make the connection we just made that Pac-Man Jones' name is not real great around Las Vegas. Um, James Harden? Potentially going back to the Rockets will get so many more people really worked up. And I'm not really sure what James Harden did to the Houston Rockets. But but there, is, there are reports out there that he may return. I don't know if he's going to get a mega deal to close out his career, but he may return to the Rockets. Well, the expectations is a four-year deal that, that he's in line to get. So it sounds like it's going to be something good. I am so fired up about this. I am so on James Harden's side. If he wants to do this, if this is what makes him happy, do it, man. And I actually think this actually takes, dare I say, courage. In today's sports landscape where it's like, you've got to compete. You've got to bleed and sweat to win a championship. Hey, man, sounds like the guy just likes living in Houston, wants to play ball, make some money, and get a four-year deal. Oh, I, didn't even think, I didn't even think of that angle that he'd go to a losing team. I think the angle that people are going to mention is that he's a guy who seems like he needs to be in control of a team he's ball dominant and now he's going to be the older mentor for a team that is trying to build with young guys well so first off i mean all i've heard is that like loser mentality you're gonna leave a championship contender uh, for that which i think is bunk if he wants to do it he, he wants to do it he doesn't have a ch- i don't think he has a choice they're not bringing him back oh they have to what they, they're if he's gone there's nobody they're replacing him with the free agent class is terrible. The two best players are Chris Middleton and Fred Van Vliet. What about the trade market? They're restricted in terms of cap, and they don't have that much to trade because they traded for James Harden. I mean, what if they have to you know, just deal with it for a year, which, which sucks because Embiid's not getting any younger. Right. So there's a sense of urgency with an off-injured big man. Yeah, you're off-injured big man. You have to wait a year. Who knows what's going to happen there? So I, I think the urgency is on Philly to get him back because there's not much you can do. Um, but I think to the overall point, too, of, like, not wanting around him, like, a young core. Uh, last time I checked, there's some pretty young guards in Houston that could probably benefit from learning from James Harden. We forget how good of a basketball player James Harden was at his peak. And, by the way, 
Still can be because he led Philly to two wins directly in the postseason in the conference semifinals. They lost 3-2. He's directly responsible for two of those wins against the Boston Celtics. With regards to Philly, you know, Doc Rivers is gone. Did you have this thought at all as, you know, we've seen Jimmy Butler go crazy and, and in game one he had 35? Would the Sixers have multiple championships right now if they had just made the decision, hey, we're going to build with Embiid and Butler is going to be 1A? I don't know about multiple, but I think they'd have at least have one. I mean, it's it's turning out to be a massive, massive mistake. And the fact that Embiid, like, willingly talks about it, openly talks about they both it. Both do. Right? The, uh, the, I mean, last year when they eliminated the famous story of Jimmy Butler walking out and screaming, Tobias Harris over me? Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> that's it's brilliant that you can he, add he's, him. He's such I, – I know people get tired of us saying this, and, and for the Reno audience, or, you know, they're probably just starting to hear us say this a lot. Uh, those markets really are unique, and it does take a special player. The Philly market with Butler is such a perfect match. Yeah. Ornery could have taken it. They would have loved him, just gotten right behind him because he's just that gritty dude. Yeah. And, and you know, me, I like numbers. I like data. There's just something unquantifiable about a dude that when it comes time postseason, nah, we're going to win some games, and we're going to be competitive because I'm here. And a guy like Joel Embiid, I think, would totally benefit from that. Top story. Number one. So, Nuggets win last night. They get off to a slow start. They come out gangbusters in the fourth quarter, take control of the game. Then they wilt a bit, and then the Lakers were within hailing distance in the final couple minutes. But Nuggets closed, just like they did in game one, and they have a 2 nothing lead. But so much of the talk has been about, hey, the Lakers are close. Maybe they figured something out. And clearly, when Mike Malone got up behind a microphone, the coach of the Nuggets, uh, he pointed out that uh, it bothered them, and I'm guessing that he used it as motivation. You know, uh, you win game one of the playoffs, and all everybody talked about was the Lakers. Let's be honest. That was a national narrative was, hey, the Lakers are fine. They're down 1-0, but they figured something out. It was. Yeah, it was. And I, and I threw out the narrative here, you know, locally on Cofield and Company, that, hey, the, for me, the Lakers are the story, so we're going to break it down from a Lakers angle. But I thought the Lakers had done enough good things. They kind of figured it out. Um, I still believe that the uh, Lakers staff is the better coaching staff over Mike Malone and company, but we'll see how it plays out the rest of the way. Give us a little more here from Malone. As I, I think this part is inaccurate, but, hey, whatever whatever floats your boat, whatever gets you guys all fired up. No one talked about Nikola just had a historic performance. He's got 13 triple-doubles now, third all-time. What he's doing is just incredible, but the narrative wasn't about the Nuggets. The narrative wasn't about Nikola. The narrative is about the Lakers and their adjustments. So, you know, you put that in your pipe, you smoke it, and you come back, and you know what? We're going to go up 2-0. Did he use you put that in your pipe and smoke it? Did they smoke? Or are all the people who wanted to go Lakers angle, are we supposed to put it in our pipe and smoke it? The way he presented it, I think, like, I've pictured Mike Malone putting all of the hate in a pipe and sitting back and just like, okay, you're puffing on it, like, all right, in the dark study. So you do realize when people did, because it's a lie, people did talk about Jokic, but the angle is also disturbing for Denver because, you know, Lisa Salters threw it out there kind of casually on a radio appearance. She's a silent reporter. A lot of the narrative, and you pointed out Mike Greenberg, too. It's like, whoa, Jokic, let's talk about him. How about this guy? The first time we're seeing him. The intro to the country. Yeah. So that that's bothersome as well. So when Jokic does sort of get credit, it's like, wow, we're shocked. Who the hell is this guy? I mean, but it shouldn't be. Because here, I mean, I think Malone's got a point in that, you know, when you have national media members after that game going, you know, Denver should think of this as a one nothing series deficit for them. Who uh, You had what, Jamel Hill and Nick, Nick Wright. Both of them basically said the same thing, that 
that felt like a loss. Yeah. No, it, it was a win. They, they're up on nothing. They, right. And, and it's a win. I also, uh, to a certain extent, I understand something. But I think Malone does have a point in that had the Nuggets, had that been flipped and the Lakers go up one nothing, that's ad nauseum Lakers conversation. Up one nothing, stole another game on the road, championship or bust. They were outside of the play-in. Like, it's just Laker. After, I mean, he does have a point in that they don't get the same coverage as the Lakers would if they were in that situation. And I think, to a certain extent, when you have a guy who looks like he's the best player in basketball right now doing what he's doing, who deserves a lot more pub. And here's the thing, Steve, which drives me nuts. You said you you said it, right? Hey, it's his introduction to the country. They were in the Western Conference Finals three years ago. This, is, this has happened before. So it's not like – it's not like this is like this team that came out of nowhere. The the Nuggets have been good for a very long time, and I do think there is something to be said of they deserve coverage the same way that a Lakers team does because if you want to grow your brand, that means covering teams like the Denver Nuggets in the right way as a very good team that could win a championship. There's a lot that goes into this because they made the finals in what year? Nuggets never. No, I'm sorry, the, the Western Conference 2020, finals. the bubble. Right. So I think that has something to do with it. When everybody was at home there, watching? There's something about the Denver market that hasn't translated yet. Like Milwaukee, like I don't think Milwaukee's treated like that. Oh, and quietly with, too. With, with Greek Freak. I think Milwaukee is covered. People watch it. You know, they give that that market the respect it deserves. Denver has not gotten it yet. Wells? And just really quickly, they had TV issues as well in the area, much like the Dodgers did. So you can't really watch the Nuggets in that in that area around Denver. This hour is brought to you by our friends at Battleborn Injury Lawyers. 766-1400 is the number. 775 for the office in Reno. How about Marcus Smart over 19 and a half points and assists? He's now gone over this mark in six of his last nine contests. He's already played 12 playoff games against the Heat in the last four years, and he's eclipsed this mark over 19 and a half points and assists in nine of those 12. I love this matchup for Marcus Smart. I love him to go over 19 and a half points and assists in game two. It's Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas and ESPN Sports Reno. John Montobles here. He's great on the NBA. That was not him. That was a dude from uh, Covers. And I thought it was interesting. Vast Sound Crew pulled that one. What do you think? Marcus Smart, solid game, over-under, points and assists combined, 19.5. I think the more important point to break down is what's been happening in game twos in recent history where you lose game one. 21-1 straight up, 20-2 and two against the spread is the team that lost game one at home coming back in game two. Yes, that's the key point. That's it's not just about losing game one. Losing game one at home, mm-hmm. the bounce back has been virtually guaranteed. Yeah. It's, what, Give me the it's number again. 21-1 and one straight up, 20-2 and two against the spread in game two. I mean, the ATS thing is crazy. That, that is wild. And I was, so I always look for explanations as to why, and I think you can kind of easily explain it to a certain extent in that, Obviously, you're going to be more focused because you lost game one. You're, you're, you know, put forth a better effort, whatever it is. But also, as a road team, your job is to win a home game. Or, excuse me, win a road game. Sorry, I had a gnat fly in my face. Uh, win a road game. When you win one of those, you have now shifted the balance in your favor, taking a game on the road. You have an opportunity, if home court holds the rest of the way, to close out the series in game six on your home court. So, you've done what you came to do. And there's a natural tendency to, yes, to just kind of take the foot off the gas, especially in the fourth quarter. If you're down by, let's say, 12 with three minutes left to go, you're probably like, all right, we did what we had to do. 
we could try to come back here, but we're going back home with the 1-1 split. Let's just let this thing happen. And sure enough, the margin takes off from there. And I think that kind of explains why you get those results in a game, too. So let's go back to breaking down what's happened in the first couple of games in the Lakers and Nuggets, and especially game two. You've noticed, and again, we just pointed out the narrative that Mike Malone, the coach of the Nuggets, said, hey, all we're hearing about are Lakers adjustments after game one, that it really wasn't a big win for us. And then they bounce back yesterday, and they do it again. They win a close game in the end, and they do the things at the end of the game they need to do. The Lakers don't get the job done. And you pointed out, at the beginning of the show that the Nuggets actually didn't play a really good game and they still won and they still you know, moved up to nothing. When you hear dopes like me or some of the other people we pointed to, like Jamel Hill or Nick Wright, talk about coaching adjustments at in the second half and fourth quarter of game one, what's your reaction? I just don't think we know what adjustments are or what is happening. By the way, I'll also say, because you slipped something in when we talked about this a couple minutes ago, I vehemently disagree with the fact that Darvin Ham is the better coach or better coaching staff there. Mike Malone's freaking awesome. That staff is awesome. They've been good for a very long time. But I think, so go, to, go back to what everybody was pointing to as the shining example of the adjustment in game one, which is Rui Hachimura on Nikola Jokic. That means Anthony Davis can come in as a rover and a helper and essentially play free safety and contest shots at the rim and do all of that. It's Darvin Ham, great job. Actually, when you, actually, when you go back and watch... They stumbled into it. Rui Hachimura got switched on to Anthony Davis, and then Anthony Davis was on Aaron Gordon, who was sitting in the dunker spot, like that area right beneath the low block, and he was just like, oh, well, if, if Aaron Gordon's going to stand here, and i got to be here because I'm defending him, I can just come and contest. This is great. So they stumbled into that. Also, it was literally six plays. Out of the entire game, it was six plays in which they, they ran that Hachimura thing. And I think what annoys me and other people the most, Steve, is that when you say, oh, Hachimura, got to figure it out. Better treat this as a loss. And Mike Malone actually said it after the first one. It's like, do you, do you think we can't make an adjustment ourselves? Do you think we can't do something on our own? And guess right. what? This is why I love basketball in these series. They did it last night. You know what they did? Okay, Anthony Davis, if you're not going to defend Nikola Jokic, your guy is going to go way over here. And guess what? Then we're going to isolate Nikola Jokic on Rui Hachimura, and we're going to let him go to work. And so if the help defender comes in, guess who it is? It's Dennis Schroeder as opposed to Anthony Davis. And that changes things for you. So I think ultimately it boils down to I'm not sure a lot of the times people understand what they're really watching. And I hate to say that because it makes me sound like, you know, kind of pompous. I know what I'm watching. I don't all the time. But I think in that instance, people didn't understand what was happening and what the Nuggets could do to counter that. The Nuggets countered it in game two. And we saw what happened. You know, a lot of these observations would be great during the broadcast. Yeah. There's two former coaches on the broadcast. And last night, and again, I'm not someone who's going to sit here and say, don't go off on tangents and be entertaining and comment on different things other than hardcore basketball. But there were a couple minutes last night where JVG just kind of loses it. And he's talking about brown and brown, the different spelling. I'm like, okay, come on. Please, let's, let's get back to bed. This is a fascinating series on, you know, which staff is going to make the right adjustments and the counter and the counter and the counter. What are you hearing from those guys? I mean, I thought yesterday was really bad because I thought it was a lot. They were complaining so much, but they were complaining about the complaining. And so it was kind of like this double thing where I'm like, that has been a big thing in the playoffs is the flopping and how difficult it is for the officials. And then judging every call if it was a flop or not yep and look there was there i think poor officiating yesterday yes 
every time a player hits the floor, it does not need to be a foul. Mm -hmm. LeBron James and Nikola Jokic both overacted within 60 seconds of one another yep. to get fouls. And they them. rewarded both of them. And LeBron uh, flopped himself to the sideline, got like a gin and tonic poured all over him. Uh, there was another point in the game where he, frankly, he probably could have had a wrist injury because he got slapped so hard on the wrist that did stop a finish mm -hmm. and a no call on that. Mm -hmm. But and, and who know? Who know? Maybe they filed it away. Yeah, maybe they filed it away, and they're. But I think they got caught up in the moment, and then they get caught up in that moment. LeBron flops, and then they're like, "Well, now what do we do?" And then Jokic flops, so give it to him. Yep, gotta give it to now, him. Now I'm not complaining, but they really have been doing a lot of grading the officials, but also kind of taking the side of the officials, which in a lot of ways they are. They are right. There is a way to police this. Stop making the calls. But there's also, but like my, it's like the end of the Edmonton, the end of the Edmonton uh, VGK game, game six, where. The officials are finally like, uh, we don't care that you're better five on four. We're not rewarding hockey players for flopping. And you heard at one point an official's yelling at one of the Oilers like, get up, get up. Mm -hmm. We're not blowing the whistle. Oilers, the, uh, the hockey equivalent of the Houston Rockets led by James Harden. Um, but I, I think, and like kind of my thing is when it comes to the officiating and when it comes to them complaining about it, the other part is it goes a little too far in one direction. So, for example, when D'Angelo Russell gets called for the flagrant one on Jamal Murray, they're sitting there complaining about it and going over the top. This is ridiculous. You can't play basketball anymore. As the replay is showing, D'Angelo Russell's bicep smacking Jamal Murray in the face. And I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, if you disagree with it, that's fine. But point out the obvious. I'm watching him getting hit in the face. Right. That is a flagrant one every time. So you can't try to make your point. And it was funny because that you, you hear that moment where Van Gundy's complaining, right? And he's like, look at this. And then they show the replay, and it smacks. He gets smacked in the face, and it's just like silence for like ten seconds. And the second they stop showing that replay, Van Gundy's like, "Yeah, I don't see anything." Like, no, it's right in front of you. You just don't spend the whole broadcast complaining about it. To your point, I want to hear basketball stuff, and every once in a while, they're actually kind of good at it when they really want to focus on yeah. it. But I, it's just, I don't need you to complain about the complaining, and then do a lot about officiating. Show me basketball things. I want to know basketball things. I saw the L.A. Times, uh, one of their columnists, uh, Plaschke, who at times is kind of a clickbait doofus. A little bit. He wrote a column. He says, uh, I asked quite reasonably, who else is sick of Anthony Davis and his disappearing act? Is that fair? I mean, I think it's fair to an extent. He does have this tendency to kind of go up and down with his performances. Follow up a 40-point game with 18 on inefficient shooting. And if you look at his game log throughout the postseason, it has been a lot of ebbs and flows. So to say disappearing act and sick of it, I don't know. You're not. You're only here because he has played so well defensively and throughout this postseason. But I think it is understandable to ask, why does this keep happening with Anthony Davis? And I think it's some of it going back to coaching. You know, if you watch Anthony Davis play basketball, a lot of it is, all right, I'm just going to try to post up and body, you know, get body to body and try to get through this. When in reality – you can run a lot more off-ball stuff with Anthony Davis. You can make him move. You can run screens for him off-ball and then force Nikola Jokic to move a little bit more. You know what I mean? You could do those things. Don't just throw the ball down to him down low and say, hey, that guy that you weigh like 35 pounds less than, back him down, baby. And it's like that's kind of hard, and it allows a lesser defender in Jokic to actually get a little comfortable on defense. All right, back to adjustments. Do you think the Lakers will smarten up and utilize the athleticism of AD and make Jokic defend in more spots to gas him and also potentially get him in foul trouble. Like, make him work. I, so I think they will. I'm thinking you're, you're probably running more pick and rolls with him as the screener so you can get more lob opportunities. Again, more off-ball stuff. But this is also why I think the Nuggets 
kind of win the series overall. Because if I'm my favorite coach, Mike Malone, okay, if you start doing that, I'm playing zone. Because then all of a sudden, now I can just have Jokic shade to the strong side, whatever, you know, excuse me, on the key, and play zone, cut off the paint, don't force him to move a bunch, and force a team that can't shoot to shoot. So I think when you're talking about all this, I think they should, I think they will, but I think there's a lot more adjustments, if you will, more cards in the deck for the Nuggets to rely on than the Lakers. Have we given Jokic enough love? I don't think so. I, I think he's the best basketball player on the planet. I, there was this, and this is what kind of annoys me, there was this narrative when we were doing all these disingenuous arguments with Joel Embiid winning the MVP, discounting the run in the bubble. It's legitimate. Yeah. And, and there was this narrative that I, I was, I was I, I'm even more entrenched about this now. It's what are we going to do when we look back in three years? Right. How are we going to explain that Nikola yeah. Jokic won three straight? This is, this, is, this is the history of the NBA writers and the MVP. They've done this before. And the fact that Kobe did not win – Lots of MVP titles was just a narrative thing. Of course, like and we just we we can't give it to him. Like why? Why can't you? And the mind-boggling thing is, Steve. I heard voters actually put out there, "I gave it to Joel Embiid yeah. because he because. did not have one." Because yeah, and, and because here's he the thing. One. And I'm going to put that right back on everybody else. Yeah. We are going to look back yeah. ten years from now and ask the question: Why the hell not did Joel or did Nikola Jokic not win three straight MVPs? It's a travesty that he did. And now he's going to go on potentially to win a title. Yep. So, yeah, we'll look back in three years, and like you just said, why didn't he win three in a row? He got the ring. That's the year he should have won it. That's Vinny from our morning show over on Raider Nation Radio 920. I'll explain in a second what he was speaking about, but at the halfway point of the show, we got to remind you, tomorrow's a big day. Ari is going to be on the road as the Aces are on the road. Their season opener in Seattle goes down at noon, and Ari and ESPN Las Vegas and Cofield and Company will co-brand with this, right? Yeah have the first official Aces watch party at BWW over in Henderson by the Galleria Mall. Noon start with the tip. Right now, Buffalo Wild Wings has their one-on-one burger deal. You buy a burger, you get six wings for only a buck. You can also sign up with Ari to win a pair of tickets um, for the Aces for an upcoming game. They have not played a home opener, a home game at all yet. So your chance to win at Buffalo Wild Wings. All of it is brought to you by our friends at Finley, Volkswagen, and Henderson. Again, Ari, tomorrow noon, prizes, tickets, watch the Aces beat up on Seattle, even without Coach Becky. Uh, Vinny was very spirited this morning. I can't wait to get to him dropping the hammer on Devontae Adams and what he said in that article during the week. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. There he was talking about his experience, uh, Lindsey, Brown had brought up a story about uh, umpires that that youth levels are dwindling. People don't want to ump anymore, ref anymore, because they're like, this is torture. And so Vinny was talking about uh, parents just believe, they all believe their kids are going to be pro athletes. And uh, he was saying he was glad his dad told him basically that he sucked and he wasn't going to make it to the big. So nothing like crushing the dreams of a young child. My father always encouraged me. I would crush my child's dreams too. I know. At At the very least, I would not harass an umpire in a youth sport because I thought my kid was going places. We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see how that works out for you. Oh, we're already having problems at soccer. So. That's it? Here we but go. No, but it's with other people's kids. But I will say, I'm actually proud of this. I may or may not have taught Diego, look, if the kid messes with you, don't back down. Right. And he did not back down. Good. And it was awesome. Soccer? <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's like a youth soccer thing, so it's yeah. not exactly games. 
So oh. there's like a point where they're like, you know, like doing drills with cones and discs and stuff. Yeah. And so at the end, they ask the kids, hey, can you pick up the discs? So Diego picks it up, and apparently the kid, this like ne'er-do-well child, uh, whose kids or whose parents just go sit off in the corner, kept going up to Diego and trying to like snatch the things from him. So, so Diego, of course, like, hell no, dude. I'm not giving this up to the point where they actually, you'd love it, like MMA style, twist and go down into the ground. Diego never gave it up. I love it. Kid lost. If you want to teach your son how to play soccer and be aggressive and stand up for himself, it's a movie I've recommended to Adam Hill. Escape to Victory. It is Americans against a Nazi soccer team. Okay. And it is the most physical soccer game ever. And Stallone plays in goal. So, I mean, it is, it is, ridiculous. It is brutal. Yeah, it's just sly, sly at 5-6. Sorry, we have, we have movie nights on Friday. I'm going to make the kid watch it tonight. Ah, do it. Do it, movie night. <laughs> so I want to get to Wemby, Webanyama. Um, I did say the other day, hey, I'm a little bit leery of taking him at the number one pick because of his size and the history of big guys. You, know, you start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's see what happens with his durability. And I said, hey, whoever wins a lottery, you know, back on Tuesday, I'm like, you know, getting the best player in the draft. Scoot or Brandon Miller is going to be awesome. I'm joking. Um, but I think there is a risk with Webb and Yama, But a lot of people have now jumped on this narrative. Before we really go big on this conversation, I do have to say, watching him more and more, folks, the possibility of someone playing small forward, pumping at the three-point line, or taking a spin dribble inside the three-point line, coming out of the spin, and then dunking, all in one move. Yep. This guy can do this. Um, I'll add, how about defensively, you're guarding somebody at the wing yes. and you can help and get to the rim in a step and block that shot? It's crazy what he can do on defense, too. He is he is the most intriguing prospect Absolutely. in the history of the NBA. A wing player at 7'5", super athletic, and God, his upside is off the freaking charts. Stanford's up with CNC. Stanford, how you doing, buddy? Pretty good, pretty good, fellas. Happy Friday to you. Happy Friday to you. I'm glad you're in a good mood. I'm glad we can see eye to eye on the show. I know you got a, a list of some of the stories we're going to get into. We're all good. We're all good. What do you make of Devontae Adams and the sit-down with the ringer? And then this quote comes out from Devontae saying uh, that he and the front office don't see eye to eye. <laughs> I mean, like, I remember when I read that, I kind of cringed a little bit, but given how – Devontae Adams, obviously drafted by the Green Bay Packers back in 2014. He's used to stability. He's used to only having one quarterback. He's used to having everybody that is clearly branching towards winning a championship. You can tell by the way they draft. You can tell by everything that's going on within the facility, within the organization. And for him to go ahead and see that he came over to the Las Vegas Raiders, it was Derek Carr. Then all of a sudden, with about two games left to go in the season, Derek Carr is now benched. He's not even at the facility. And then, obviously, he moves on to greener pastures. And now you have Jimmy G, Jimmy G uh, behind center right now. And I could see why he's feeling the way he feels. He just wants stability. And I think, ultimately, that's what he was trying to get at with his interview with the ringer. Is it fair to say that – like, Devontae Adams hasn't been this outspoken cantankerous dude when he was in Green Bay. Like, can we fairly look at this Stanford and say the Raiders are doing something wrong here for this to get out the way it did? Because if they were actually listening to what he had to say, I would assume this doesn't get out in a public way like it did now. 
Yeah, it probably doesn't. But I think also you got to remember this. Also, whenever guys get that big contract, whenever guys get that that type of stability, that's when now they feel a little bit more confident. They feel like they can go ahead and give their opinion more. So once again, he was with the Green Bay Packers. Who was the biggest person on the Green Bay Packers? Aaron Rodgers. So he wasn't about to make that statement. But with him being pretty much the highest paid player for the Las Vegas Raiders, maybe he feels a little bit more empowered. And also he's probably a little frustrated because a lot of the reason why he came to the Las Vegas Raiders was because of Derek Carr. Yes, he wanted to win a championship for the team that he grew up idolizing and rooting for out in the Bay Area. But it still was about Derek Carr and for him to see firsthand his close friend now be benched where he's banished from the facility that probably didn't sit well with him. And so obviously them signing Jimmy G, somebody that we all can see that has not had a fully healthy season in all of his years in the NFL, that probably gives him pause to cause and wonder if the franchise truly is trying to win right now or maybe if they're trying to rebuild all right so very much legit comment uh there's a lot of things he could be not happy with uh, i mean i think a lot of it is hey i thought i might be getting aaron Rodgers, and now i got jimmy g the other thing he could be complaining about too is they're spending money and picks on offense meanwhile the defense has a lot of question marks you know i i saw one uh story what was it a pro football network had the Raiders D ranked going into the season as the number one, uh, number thirty-one defense in the league. I mean, that is that's a legit complaint. Are are they going to be that bad? Thirty-one. Um, guys, oh. did the Raiders or did the Raiders not last year break a record for the most yes. double-digit leads yeah. blown yeah. in the second half? Uh-huh. Uh Hello. Yes, yeah, guys, yeah, don't yeah, get quiet uh, on me. Uh, so I just kind of so mumbled it. Being, I'm like, it's a, it's a uh, gruesome truth. <laughs> so with that being said, are you surprised that they're rated number 31 in the NFL? You're surprised by that? I'm not. Did the Raiders go and – did they draft Christian Gonzalez? Did they draft a Witherspoon out of Illinois? Did they draft some – uh, some some big time safety or corner in the first round. Did they sign some big time, big ticket uh, person in the secondary to help the defense? Did they? Because uh, I don't remember that. Did they? No. So you're surprised <laughs> that they're rated or ranked number thirty one going into the season. You're surprised by that. I'm hoping that their style of not spending a lot on defensive backs and linebackers that they've unearthed some good values and. Things will things will move forward. You don't always have to have giant names out there. No, you don't. But I did not see the Raiders put any emphasis yeah. on trying to better the back seven through free agency or the draft. I did not see any signing. I didn't see any draft pick. It did not look like that was a part of the team that the Raiders felt like they needed to address. And I think for a lot of people within Raider Nation, and even Devontae Adams for what he's been saying, that's probably where the frustration is coming from. Because listen, it's very obvious. You can go and draft whoever. It does not mean that they're going to turn out to be a stud. It does not mean that at all. We all are aware of that. But it just looks like they're not even taking the approach to try to better the defense, or should I say the back seven part of the defense, where a lot of the biggest plays and the points were scored blowing those leads that I mentioned earlier within uh, within this uh, segment. 
Well, and it's it's also I, I think this is why I get at where Adams is coming from, Stanford, because like to your point, in today's NFL, the defensive backfield is becoming more and more important. Corner positional value is more important than it ever has been in a really long time. You see teams like the Seahawks. Now they have two starting corners that are young and they really believe in going down the stretch and Witherspoon and the kid that they had from last year's draft. Like it, it, it seems crazy to ask Devontae Adams to actually be happy when you're actually looking at the way teams are building. The Raiders are not doing it. Exactly. And I think that when you look at how the quarterback position is, that, that, that's the top spot. That's the MVP. That's the, the most important position on the football field. Yes, corner is probably the second most. Maybe you could go and make an argument for receiver, maybe edge rusher. But yes, you have to have guys in the back end. You got to have a corner. You got to have another corner. You got to have somebody in the nickel. You got to have safeties that at least can stay within their zone and at least be able to cut down or limit big plays in the back end. So I'm right there with you. And whenever you see a team have a blase, blase approach to trying to make sure that that unit is not as good as it possibly can be, that's where just simply from a spectator perspective, that's where it looks like, oh, you guys don't really give a bleep because you're not even really putting a lot of effort into trying to change it as if it was the Legion of Boom last year. You guys are treating it like, oh, you know what? What we did last year is good enough because we don't seem to be in a dead sprint to try to find the best people available to get better back there. Today's Reno Hour is brought to you by our friends at Battleborn Injury Lawyers. Give them a call at 766-1400 anywhere around the state of Nevada. Offices in Reno, Henderson, and Las Vegas. Got to dial 775 in the north. All right, big name, Marcus Peters. They brought him in. Should they sign him? Uh, I think right now at this juncture uh, where the Raiders are, you need to sign him because the Raiders obviously did not have a good secondary the past couple of years. We know that. They gave up a lot of big plays. They have a lot of bone leads. But the Raiders were not getting what? Turnovers. And what does Marcus Peters do best? He picks the ball off, going the other direction. Now, obviously, he had a career low last year, did not have a good season. That's why he's still on the market right now. But what else is out there available? So because of that, the Raiders painted themselves into this corner. That's why I feel that they need to sign Marcus Peters. Let's talk a little NBA, and then I have a couple of H-Town stories to get to. And, of course, uh, Stanford is a Houston guy. He's uh, working on the Houston Cougar staff, went to school there. Um, NBA, we've had all these great performances individually, and the beginning of the conference finals have been awesome so far. Who do you think is the most impactful player remaining in the playoffs? Is it uh, Jimmy Butler, Jokic, LeBron, AD, Jason Tatum, someone else? Who, who's your guy? Oh, in terms man, of being uh, I would have to go with the jo- I would have to go with the Joker. <laughs> the uh, like the way that that guy averages a triple double and the way he does it, and he literally will get the rebound and take the ball the length of the court and either go for the layup or pass it off to somebody in the corner pocket. I would probably say he's the most impactful just because it does not seem that the Denver Nuggets can run smoothly without him on the court. Who's going to be in the finals? What do you think? Is it going to be Denver rolling through the Lakers? And then what happens Celtics heat? Pretty much my, my pick for the NBA finals would be the same one that it was going into the playoffs. That would be the Boston Celtics and the Denver Nuggets. Right now, the Boston Celtics, to me, they're about to play in a few minutes. They just seem very, very up and down. They seem very inconsistent. But I feel because you got the Miami Heat with, what, seven undrafted guys, I think eventually that talent is going to take over. The Boston Celtics are going to win in game six or game seven, uh, something like that, a lengthy series. But, and then I think on the Western Conference side, I feel like if the Los, the Los Angeles Lakers, if they do not win both games at the crypt, 
<laughs> I was about to say Staples Center, but at the True. Crypt, if, if they don't <laughs> win both games, then it's definitely going to be um, a very quick series for the Denver Nuggets. In uh, Houston, when it comes to the NBA, you want James Harden back? Close out his career with you guys? Uh, I mean, I'm not really a Rockets fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a Spurs guy. Okay. But I think that uh, I think if Harden wants to come back to Houston, I don't see anything wrong with it. I think everybody knows at this juncture, James Harden is a phenomenal offensive talent. There's no doubt about that. When it comes to defense, when it comes to some, certainly playing as a team, that's not something that's high on his priority list. So I'm, I'm not going to poo-poo it if he wants to get back to H-Town. I mean, where's the hangout spots in Houston? I would assume the economy is just really excited for him to come back, considering that he's going to pump a lot of money into the economy down there. <laughs> well, i tell you this. Uh, given that some of the establishments that James Harden likes to frequent after games or even in the offseason, he definitely is going to pump some in, <laughs> pump some more into the economy in H-Town with, uh, with, certain, with some of the certain establishments that he likes to frequent, especially from his time uh, back here a couple years ago. Is there any buzz there? To get an NHL team, I don't know if you followed the story, but uh, in Tempe, Arizona, they kind of voted. They didn't kind of. They voted down the chance to uh, build the Coyotes a new arena, and now Houston is rumored as one of the spots the NHL could land. Uh, it's not really much buzz going on around here because simply, you know, simply put, this is Texas. It is a football state. Yes, we got basketball. Obviously, the Houston Astros, the reigning world champions. When it comes to hockey, that's not something a lot of Texans can get behind because it's warm weather. Like Just like what you guys are going through right now in Vegas, it's 95 degrees here in Texas. Obviously, in the northern part, you got the Dallas Stars. But when it comes to the state of Texas and what fans really get behind, we all know it's football. Then it's baseball basketball if the Dallas Mavericks are rolling or the Spurs or the Rockets but uh, I would say hockey is a distant distant fourth place let's close back on football with Stanford route here in the final 90 seconds uh, you know sad note today Jim Brown legendary running back passed away 87 years old and we were just talking about Victor Webanyama at 7-5 being this revolutionary unicorn I wonder what it was like back in the day when a guy who's 6'2 and 230 pounds walks on the field in the NFL in 1957-58, and, you know, the linemen are like, wait, that guy's as big as us. <laughs> I think that you know exactly how they felt. I mean, how many <laughs> years did he leave the league in rushing? Uh, and, I mean, just for everything that he bought to the sport in the time that he was playing, what did he win, three NFL MVP awards? I think something like that. It just showed exactly how, how far before his time he was in the type of athlete and just simply – him every single game, giving it to you over and over and over, almost kind of like a Marshawn Lynch in the modern day. And I think it was just um, it was it was great for what he did for our league. It's great for all the activism that he did as well. Yep. And he will definitely be missed. RFC Jim Brown. Stanford, have a great weekend. We're glad you uh, joined us today. We'll talk to you next week. You guys be good, man. Uh, be safe out there. The former Oakland Raider, longtime vet in the National Football League. Sprinter extraordinaire. And also working on the Cougar staff with the football program. Yeah, I hope there's a lot of reminiscing about Jim Brown. I'm glad at the end of that comment that Stanford mentioned activism. Because if you want to look up the uh, famous photo with a lot of African-American athletes sitting at a table and standing as, you know, leaders in their own rights in the civil rights movement, Jim Brown was right in the middle of that right after his career. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. You remember that famous picture? They asked OJ to be involved, OJ Simpson, uh, you know, for black causes. And OJ's like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. <laughs>